0: It is with great disappointment that I come this morning to let you know that I couldn't wear the t-shirt. I had to clip it to the stand. That's <laughs> promised last week. It turns out that the graphics on the t-shirt, all, most of them are on the back of it, so I thought if I wore it, you wouldn't even be able to see the pictures, unless I preach backwards, and I don't want to hear from those who think I should preach backwards. <laughs> Nor could I in- channel my inner crisscross and wear it backwards, so that didn't quite work either with the neck and stuff. So. Here it is. The graphics are right in front of you. Some of you are searching Google right now for crisscross to figure out what I just said. <laughs> hey, as we uh, get started here uh, in, the, in the sermon, I do want to point to what's coming ahead, uh, just to give a, a little sense here. Uh, next week, so this is the last week that we're in Jonah, next week uh, we have a guest preacher, uh, who's not a guest. Uh, they're, a, they're a friend and member of this congregation, and so Mark Ronvalds will be here next week to, to preach. Uh, he's gonna be using a text out of Romans and so uh, he'll be preaching next week and then the following week We start our fall series which will be in the book of Philippians and so that starts the, the following week And so uh, we're moving out of Jonah this week um, Here we go and one last part to note before we get into the sermon. No, I'm not sponsored by LaCroix And so if you see me drinking out of LaCroix can, I have not sought sermon sponsorships. All right, so here we go <laughs> You know, there's a website online uh, that preachers go to, uh, at least a lot of them in the country go to, to seek out sermon illustrations. In fact, it has a name that would kind of channel you towards that. It's called Sermon Central, right? Does that sound like you need to go there to find your sermon illustrations and anecdotes for what you're about to say. I don't often draw on the sermon illustrations from there, uh, but I do go to that site from time to time just to get a feel for how different preachers across the country deal with the text. Uh, do you see what type of stories that kind of come into their imagination as they tell the story of, of Scripture? What is it that when they come to a text like our own today, what do they imagine would be an illustration, a contemporary illustration to use uh, for that text? And so I went out to the Servant Central this last week. I thought we're in week four of Jonah, the final week. We better go there and see what's going on, what people are saying. And usually the illustrations fall into one of two camps. right? So one of the camps is to prove... Uh, somehow or I have some sort of a funny statement or joke uh, to say that the story about the fish is a true story That you could actually survive being eaten by a fish and you'll see all kinds of illustrations that that talk about that The veracity of that claim is it is it possible that someone could be eaten by a fish be in the fish for a few days and survive And again, there's all kinds of things in there whether it's news clippings of people that were eaten by fishes at some point um, or it's uh, by a joke Uh, that says somehow you can ask jonah when you're in hell that's kind of that was the punchline for one of them so i'm not sure how you would use that in a sermon just for instance but that was the punchline you just did i know right that's how you that's how you use it the second category that these uh illustrations fall into is this idea of jonah as a transformed person that jonah the prophet in chapter one who then in chapter two at the end of chapter one is eaten by the fish in chapter two uh, offers a prayer uh, and is then vomited out of the fish onto dry land. And he's back on mission in chapter three, right? This is a story of transformation of a person who's been changed and, and they're a different person now because of the experience. And so I was surprised by that being an illustration of Jonah because it seems to be that none of the people who use that illustration have read chapter four. <laughs> and that's where we're at today. Chapter four, Jonah, the not changed man. There's a quote that says this from one of the commentators. Though Jonah hardly comes across as a hero anywhere in the book, he appears especially selfish, petty, temperamental, and even downright foolish in chapter 4. How's that for a sense? Right? That's strong words. That's how Douglas Stewart sums up the figure of Jonah in this last chapter of the book. And we don't have to wait long to see that figure develop in this chapter. Right in verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. Right? We read those words, and we're like, wow, he's... He's ticked off, but he's more than ticked off. I should add here that the underlying uh, phrase I've heard, the clause that's translated uh, from the Hebrew is probably the strongest way that you could sum up dissatisfaction in that language, right? And that's used for Jonah here. This is a dissatisfied person. He is beyond angry. And the subject of that anger is God and God's actions. How could God do this? How could God let this happen? Remember at the end of chapter three, it says, when God saw what they did, How they turned from their evil ways. God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them. And he did not do that. Right? So what he had said was going to happen to Nineveh doesn't end up happening. And that's the thing that displeases and makes Jonah so angry here at the top of chapter 4. The prophet wants God to do to Nineveh whatever God pleases. I want you to do whatever you please to to that city, to that people, until God does... And he doesn't like the thing that God does. And that's what Jonah's ticked off about here and what he has in his mind. So he's mad because God shows mercy to this outsider nation. Jonah looks petty and temperamental. He's hard to like, and that's the point. That's what the author wants us to land at at this point. He doesn't want us to draw up sides with Jonah, right? So when you think about the list of people that are your role models, we talked about this earlier in the series. This writer does not want you to draw up sides or to be in the camp of Jonah. And he's made sure in every single chapter to show us that this is not the role model. This is not the person that we're supposed to fall in line with. But if you do, if you throw on your Jonah sweatshirt, you say, no, no, I want to be temperamental. I want to be petty. I want to be nationalistic. That's that's who I want to be. This author is trying to draw you and paint you into a corner so that you can see something different. To see a better way to live. You know, Jesus told a story in Luke 15. Jesus told a lot of stories. But in Luke 15, he tells a story of a family. How do you hear from a family? How do you are from a family? Not that you have a family, yeah, but you, you came from a family. Did anybody, did anybody here come from a family? I came from a family. right? There's different characters in your family. We're not going to identify the characters in my family. I might be the character in my family, actually. <laughs> There's that, old, there's that old kind of expression like, if there's no one weird in your family, guess what? It's you. <laughs> You're the weird one. But in Luke 15, Jesus tells this story that has similar effect to the Jonah story. He tells the story of a family, and, and we know the story as, as the prodigal son. Some of you know this uh, from the story itself from Jesus. Others know it from the Rembrandt painting. Maybe you read the Henry Nouwen book uh, that's based on a reflection of that painting and that story. And the the folks who who lay out the translations for us in English, they oftentimes will title these these stories uh, different ways. Like the NIV itself, uh, the New International Version, titles the stories. This is not in the text. This is a title that precedes the text. They call it the parable of the lost son, right? So you think of like the the prodigal son, or in this case, the lost son. I like how the the NRSV does it, what they're titled, that they carry on into their updated edition. They call it the parable of the prodigal and his brother. That's how they, that, that's how they sum the story. And that's a more accurate picture because as the story goes on, you quickly realize it's not just about the prodigal. There's a larger story here. It's a story about a family. And Jonah looks a lot like the older brother in that story. You remember that story, the younger brother runs away, takes his inheritance and, 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 and flees away from the family. When the inheritance is exhausted, he returns home with a hope that his family will receive him back as a servant, as a, not as a family member, but just receive me back as one of the workers because they're treated better than I was feeling, this, this prodigal was feeling, at the time when they were at their lowest point. And so they began to return home. And on their way home, the father sees them a long way off. And as Jesus tells the story, the father begins to run to that prodigal, embraces them, clothes them as a family member, brings them home and receives them back with a full on party and celebration. And that's the picture of God's grace to us, extended to outsiders and runaways, that we're welcomed home by a father who comes running. But the story continues, remember? It's the prodigal and his brother, right? And that older brother who's already in the home sees those who are being welcomed at a distance. That a distance is important. Sees them being welcomed and becomes angry and wonders about their own status. How come they don't get more and more and more? And that picture is a picture in Jonah as well, as Jonah looks a long way off to these enemy neighbors and says, I don't want for them what God has given to me and to my own people. We look at uh, biblical interpretation in these books like Jonah and you look at books like Ruth. There's a whole line of uh, scholarship that looks at these texts and asks the question, and it's a good question, why were these books written and where did they come from? And those of us who grew up in kind of a, a Sunday School world, we, we oftentimes are told these stories as a narrative uh, of, of things that happened, historical events, and this is the, this is what happened and and we're, we're the place into the stories themselves, we're supposed to read them as this was this is the way if you had a video camera, this is exactly what you would see if you went back in history. And this is what you would have experienced. But the scholarship what it does is it attempts to look at why were the stories written and why did they emerged in the time that they did emerge into these these communities, these Jewish communities. And one of the things that they've learned in that, or one of the things they've surmised in that is that stories like this were intended to speak to an audience that was becoming more and more nationalistic at the time. So during the the time of Ezra, there was a lot of fervor about keeping it within the camp. Jews marrying other Jews, Israelites uh, keeping within Israel to kind of regroup and recover uh, a sense of national identity of who they were and if they became too foreign, then, then they were to lose something in that process that that might be some of the reasons why uh, they were experiencing the pain and suffering that they experienced. And so let's keep it in the camp and regroup and become a stronger people because of that. Curiously, this literature began to emerge in those seasons. Stories about a, a, a person marrying a foreigner, a person like Boaz marrying Ruth, a foreigner and leading to the greatest king. Stories like here in Jonah, where a prophet looks ridiculous because of their, head, their hard-headed and hard-heartedness of heading towards saying, this is who we need to be. We cannot welcome the foreigner into the camp. And it says that God extends mercy to those outsiders. It raises curious questions for us today because we do the same thing, don't we? Isn't that how we do it as people? When we experience tragedy or struggle, when we experience an economic downturn, or experience some sort of crisis on the border? Don't we close things down? Don't we shut things down and say, hey, let's let's stay with our, with our group. Let's cluster around the things that we know and the people we know. So this story might have something to say to us as well in our own season here as it does in the time that it was written and released. Of course, the question for us all is, how could Jonah be so petty, right? We're a church that holds a vision about grace and how it transforms, right? This, this, these being these people that are shaped by grace, who inhabit grace and proclaim grace. And here we have Jonah being so petty. And he says, you know, he's petty in the midst of knowing who God is. Look at verse, the second part of verse two. He says, he knows that God is gracious and compassionate. He knows that God is slow to anger and abounding love. He knows that God would relent from bringing the calamity that was pro- promised there. Of course, the answer here is that Jonah is very much serving his own nationalistic interest. He's serving his own personal interest in what he hopes to acquire. And he's more than willing to double down on that, which many times we do the same. If this is what God is up to, we hear in verse 3, I want out. Kill me now, is what Jonah says. Kill me now. I don't want any part of that. I don't want to be in that world. I don't want to live in that place. It's not take my life and let it be. It's just take my life. (laughs) I'm out, I'm out. And of course, this is despicable behavior. As we as readers and hearers are supposed to at this point move away from those shared interests with Jonah. You can imagine when it was being read in those early audiences, that people that held this kind of thing firm, they would start hearing this Jonah character and they would see themselves in the mirror and they'd start to shrink back and say, I don't wanna be that person. I don't wanna be that person that I'm hearing here in the text. I want to be something different. I want to move to a different way. I want to move to a better way. And the transition to that better way is signaled by a question. Is it right for you to be angry? That's the question that's posed here in the text. Verse four, is it right for you to be angry? It's appropriate to be displeased with God's Nineveh situation, right? The question challenges that. Is it okay to be displeased with the bush? that has now become or now has come and gone is it okay to be displeased with god here of course the audience that's wanting to be faithful the audience that is seeking after that grace and wanting that for themselves would say no something changes in their heart it's a good question for us to ponder this morning it's a good question for us an important one as well particularly as we are not somehow exempt or immune from this behavior, like I said. Leslie Allen, uh, who assumes as much, when he concludes his commentary on Jonah by writing this, this is the last words of his commentary, A Jonah lurks in every Christian heart, whimpering his insidious message of smug prejudice, empty traditionalism, and exclusive solidarity. So we do well, as a Christian audience, to ponder this question. Are we growing day by day, more and more like jonah is that who we're becoming like but fortunately the book of jonah doesn't end on that note doesn't end on a note of condemnation for us but it ends on a different note instead another question is put forward and this book is an odd book because as you read through the whole thing it almost feels like a page got dropped and he said here here's the final copy but we lost the last page because it drops off on this on this question but there's also, I don't know, if some of you might be familiar with this book. Uh, Simon Wiesenthal wrote a book called The Sunflower, which has a similar effect by ending a book on a question. In Wiesenthal's book, it was his life story imprisoned in a Nazi, a Nazi concentration camp. And at one point, he's brought to the bedside of an SS soldier while he's in prison. He's brought to an SS soldier who begins to confess his own uh, war crimes that he's committed. He's about to die and he wants to confess to a Jewish man so that he can somehow be absolved of those crimes. And so is standing there by the bedside and he's asked to forgive this man. This man's asking for forgiveness for these crimes. I'm not gonna tell you what Wiesenthal does. You'll have to read the book. It's not very long, but you'll have to read the book. But here's how the book then ends. You, who have just read this sad and tragic episode in my life mentally change places with me and ask yourself the crucial question what would I have done and that's how the book ends what would I have done it ends with a question and Jonah has similar effect it ends with a question of course anytime you have a story that ends like that what's intended here is an expansion of our own horizon it's a chance for us to move from the place that we find ourselves Rooted in or at least we think we're rooted in it and to move to a place where we might inhabit and see something larger a larger story that's taking place and we're invited to then step into that place and Live there as opposed to the place where we have placed ourselves In Jonah, we have the nationalist prophet's answer to God's question It's quick and it's a ready, No, I don't think outsider belongs i don't want to be part of your mission to offer mercy and grace to those who are outside the camp i don't want to be part of this mission that you've set in the world to go and receive as your very own those who are outside those i've claimed to be my very own they don't belong i don't want anything to do with it again kill me now but god invites us to a different place Invite you and me to join God in that mission of mercy, that mission of grace. To extend an open hand and an open embrace to those who are far outside the camp, as well as those who are near. Remember, the Assyrians are right next door with Jonah. Think of Jesus' stories. I already said there was one Jesus' story. Here's another Jesus' story. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells the story of a servant who pleads for mercy from his large debt. You remember the story? He owes a lot, and he comes, and at this point, the one he owes the debt to is calling on the loan, saying, hey, you gotta pay up, buddy. And as this person shows up, he doesn't have the resources to do this. And the person he owes the money to isn't in the mood to, to hear any excuses, and he's quite ready to throw him into prison, his whole family as well, and to ruin his entire life. He pleads for mercy, and for no other reason than the good pleasure of the one who is owed the money, he is offered grace. It's extended to him that the loan is to be forgiven, and he's to go from that place no longer a debtor. What a beautiful picture. To leave that place, you go in with fear, and you leave with salvation, and your fear is gone. Well, of course, anybody who hears that story, or at least that part of the story would think, that's awesome, that's amazing grace, my friend. I want to be part of that. I'd be hopping out of there going, woo, I'm gonna live differently, right? Not this guy. This guy finds a person who owes a far less debt, and that's what Jesus says. This person owed far less than what he had owed. And what does he do? He doesn't forgive that debt. beats the guy up. He demands payment. He says, "You owe me. Get the money. He shows no mercy. Of course, word goes back to the one he owed the great debt to, and his life ultimately goes into ruins because he didn't see the transformation that was before him. He didn't see the opportunity that lie ahead, The importance to live into that new place that he was invited to because his debts had been canceled. We of course live in a season where we might point at COVID closures as having done great harm to the persons of our community. And there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of harm that's been done because of closures um, we're not going to argue whether closures are appropriate, just that we know that harm has been done because of them, that people are falling into isolation, that it, that it hurt people emotionally and psychologically that did harm to relationships. And we live in a season now where we're trying to bring health and healing, we're trying to minister and care across, not this, only this congregation, but across this entire community and country uh, for what has happened, particularly to our youth, but also to people of all ages. Uh, because of that experience. But you know what, we've been living with closures before the pandemic. There's been a lot more closures that have done harm and suffering and have hurt people far before any time we ever heard of COVID. We've seen uh, arguments and wrestling for when things feel out of control and out of sorts. We've clamored to yell for closing borders. We've talked about closing our ranks to get on our sides we're red or blue or whatever. We talked about even driving to our neighborhoods and closing our garage doors without coming into any interaction with our neighbors. So we've been closing ourselves off for a long time. It's part of our culture, it's part of our identity, it's part of what it means to be an individual in America. But we're being called to something different. As people were called to a new vista, a new possibility, the possibility that God's grace extends beyond us, that God's grace extends beyond me that God will show mercy to whom God shows mercy. And we're invited to welcome those sisters and brothers into that grand community that God has made for you and me. If I were to close out the book of Jonah, I'd close it out with this. That question that ends the book, that question about is God allowed to show mercy to this great city of Nineveh? That question is one for us to ponder. For each one of us as we go from the series we don't close the series, but rather this series now opens up. And for us in the coming week, and the coming days, each one of us to ask that question. Are there places in my life where I've allowed whatever external factors or even some internal murmurings, I've allowed it to close me off from God's mercy to the other and to say, I want to live differently. I want to live at that place and at that moment and at that juncture where God's love is best expressed. And that's in the hearts of the other, and that's in the hearts of us as well. Maybe so for our generation this day and every day of our lives, amen. Friends, let us pray.